Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Food, Sex, Politics. It's your girl, Nicole Rodriguez, registered dietitian. As always, I'm here tonight with the one, the only, Mr. Dave Sharotsky, the food porn unicorn. Dave, you brought a special guest of your own, and so did I. Mr. Bryce is here with us, Mr. Bryce Sharotsky. And we have some very esteemed company. Welcome, Dr. Larry Gilbertson. He is the Applied Genome Modification Lead in the Biotech Group for Bayer Crop Science. Dr. Gilbertson, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show, doctor. It is my pleasure to be here with both you, Nicole, and Dave, and please call me Larry. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel quite comfortable. I mean, if you, if you insist, but maybe you could tell everyone <laughs> listening a bit about your background and they might understand my apprehension at not addressing you as uh, Dr. Gilbertson. So tell us a little bit about your I, career I path. I you a longer title. I don't even think Dr. Gilbertson. <laughs> Dr. Larry Gilbertson, sir. Yes, I'm Larry. Um <laughs> So I'm a scientist at Bayer Crop Science, and uh, my journey to become a scientist was not as direct as as it is for many people. For example, I didn't know when I was in third grade that I wanted to be a scientist. It wasn't until I was actually going to college. I had just gotten out of the Navy, and I went to college with some of the money that I saved up while I was in the Navy, and I, I was studying biology because... I thought I was going to go to medical school and actually become a medical doctor. Um, and then to increase my chances of getting accepted into medical school, I did some research in a laboratory while I was an undergraduate student, which is very typical to increase your odds of getting accepted. And while I was doing that biological research, working with organisms, working with yeast, actually the kind of yeast that you use to make beer and to make bread, I fell in love with yeah me too i fell in love with basic research i think the first time i saw a mutant on my petri plate i thought that is so cool and so i changed my plan i decided not to go to medical school and i went to graduate school i wanted to be able to do this for a living and i wanted to do it uh, in an intense way and so everybody recommended go to graduate school so i went from university of iowa to university of oregon on the west coast in Eugene, and uh, got a PhD in biology where I studied molecular biology and molecular genetics. So a molecular biologist is somebody who works with molecules, obviously. However, most of the time, we mean somebody who works with DNA, and that's what I do now. Um, and that's what I've been doing for about 30 years. I, um, After I got my PhD, I was looking for jobs, and I was interested in working in industry, and I thought I would try it out at a company that back then I had never heard of called Monsanto in St. Louis, so back to the Midwest, and I came to Monsanto um, working as a molecular biologist, actually a little skeptical about whether or not I would like it, working for the man, and I said, oh, I'll give this a try, and within about two weeks, I was completely won over, I was completely converted, the science was just as exciting uh, and fun as it was in graduate school, Uh, the people I worked with were just as creative and just as smart and worked just as hard, Uh, and I've been there now for about 25 years. Now, Monsanto has since been acquired by Bayer, 
Bayer Crop Science, so now I'm, I'm a uh, Bayer employee. But uh, I've been there for 25 years doing molecular biology, doing basic research, trying to figure out ways to genetically engineer plants to improve them for farmers and, and, and for, for the, the, the world, for the public. Um, and, I, and I love what I do, and, and I'm happy to do it, but it all comes back to the DNA part. But, so I love the DNA, and I love being able to work with DNA, and so I'm glad I'm a molecular biologist. Well, then you're the right guy to be speaking with tonight, obviously. We want to kind of get into, like, what exactly is DNA? Why is it so special, and especially so in terms of of, you know, thinking big picture, eventually feeding this larger population that we'll be faced with in 2050. And am I wrong for thinking of all this like Jurassic Park? No, so I understand <laughs> why you went there. And we can talk about that a little bit when we uh, start talking about how we can modify DNA, but it just starts with DNA. And so fundamentally, as most people remember from when they were in high school or maybe college, DNA is the molecule that stores the information. Sometimes we call it the blueprint. Sometimes we call it the, uh, the recipe, the instruction manual. It stores all the information that makes you the way you are, makes a tomato the way it is, makes a, makes a fruit fly the way a fruit fly is, and so on. So it just stores information. That information, if you remember from high school, is transcribed into RNA, and then the RNA is translated into protein, so DNA, RNA, protein, and for the most part, it's the protein that makes the traits, makes the eye color, makes the sweetness of a tomato, uh, whether or not an onion makes you cry when you chop it, things like that. Um, those are coming primarily because of the proteins, but remember, it all comes back from the instruction manual, which is the DNA. So when you think about plant breeders, when you think about agriculture and so on, and, and of course in human health and so on, you, you want to change some of those traits. You want to improve those traits. You want to make the tomato sweeter. You want to make the ear of corn bigger, things like that. And since those traits come from the DNA, you can do that by changing the DNA. That's why I love working on DNA so much. I, I, I love it so much that I actually um, never far away from a, mo a model of DNA. I've got one on my desk at work. I've got one on my nightstand at home next to my bed. And um, it's because it's such an important molecule to me. And so this is what I like about genetics. This is what I like about what I do is anytime we want to make any improvements in agriculture to the crops, which then all, is where the food comes from, we can do that by making changes in the DNA. Dave, you have something similar on your nightstand, right? <laughs> I actually have the exact same thing with a picture of Dr. Larry. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Am I being filmed right now, by the way? He's <laughs> <laughs> on all these DNA models. <laughs> Seriously. So how do, I, I want to clarify a couple of things. How do breeders do exactly what they do in improving these traits? And maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the history of plant breeding, because... I think a lot of us have seen these pictures of what a banana used to look like or what watermelon used to look like. And we've obviously come so far in terms of items that are 
more palatable, more attractive to the consumer's eye, all these different qualities that you spoke of. So if you could maybe clarify some of like how the actual plant sex in breeding comes about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get to the sex part in a moment. Um, so that's a great question, Nicole. And so uh, breeding, when we talk about plant breeding, has been around for, I don't know, uh, let's say about 100 years. But it really goes back to the beginning of when humans started becoming uh, an agricultural society, basically growing food rather than just hunting and gathering. And so as, as humans were growing food, um, you know, they would grow their, their plants uh, that they would harvest to, to, um, to eat. And as they're doing that, they notice some are better in some way than others. And they would say, let's plant more of that next year. And so they would take the seeds from those plants, the ones that were better, and plant those the next year. And those plants that those traits that they liked, they would come back again next year. And they would do that again and again. And over hundreds and thousands of years, they improved those crops. Uh, they improved the foods, they improved the plants. So that, for example, as you just said, the types of things that we eat nowadays, you don't find things like that existing in a natural state anywhere. The bananas that we eat nowadays are very different than from wild bananas. The, the strawberries that we eat nowadays are very different from wild strawberries. Um, and what humans were doing when they were doing that, saving those seeds and planting them back and planting them back without, of course, knowing anything about DNA because it was thousands of years before we, we, we uh, discovered DNA. Uh, what they were actually doing was changing the DNA because those plants within them already have a lot of differences. One plant and another plant growing in the same field have lots and lots of differences in the DNA. And remember, the DNA is what makes the traits. And so as they were constantly selecting the best ones, what they were really doing is skewing those differences in the DNA and changing them from the, the wild state from which they started into something bigger and better or just better for them. And they were changing the DNA all along. Now, we don't call that breeding because I don't we don't call that breeding because they weren't aware of the fact that there were genes and so on. It wasn't until the, the mid 1800s with, with Mendel and Darwin that we started to realize, Oh, there are these, this, this hereditary units that um, these traits are inherited from. So that now we started to understand the basis of this, but the fact is they were changing the DNA in those plants compared to, uh, how it was found in the wild. And so because of that, I often say that pretty much everything we eat, um, anything, you know, when you go to the produce section or anywhere in the grocery store, except perhaps some of the seafood, uh, when you see that, it's been changed at the genetic level. So it's been genetically changed uh, by humans. Now, I know that that's different than modern breeding in, in technical ways and then from GMOs and gene editing, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, nonetheless, they were changing the DNA. And so the watermelons are very different from wild watermelons, bananas, and so on. So really, the only exception is might maybe some wild-caught seafood. So, so how long does um, it I think that's fascinating. What's the process between finding a tomato, watermelon, whatever, and changing it to the point where we have it now? 
That's a great question, Dave. So it's a slow process, especially for the uh, 9,900 years that humans were doing this without realizing that they were uh, that there was DNA, um, and there were genes in there, and it was really just selection. And that's that's basically the the basis of evolution. By the way, is is there's variation. In this case, there's variation in the DNA, and then there's selection. In this case, the humans themselves are selecting it. So, so for example, a lot of us are familiar, most of us are familiar with uh, a range of vegetables like cabbage and kohlrabi and kale and broccoli and cauliflower, and we see all of those in the grocery store, and we eat them, and we see how different they are, and we like one more than the other, and so on. Um, all of those changes, as different as they look and taste to you, they're all the same species of plant. And humans have actually said, you know, I want, I want um, bigger leaves. Um, and so you would get those big kale leaves or, or cabbage, or you want lots and lots of little buds on them. And then so that would become broccoli. And so the flowers are changing on, on the plant. All of those are derived from a wild type of mustard, but it was humans that changed them. And so they were selecting on them. So essentially they evolved them. And that was, you say, I was going to say, would you say it's more closer to evolution or would you say it's closer to breeding a wolf into a pug? Yeah, I, you know, that's um, at some point it becomes breeding. Um, and so I don't not an expert on, on dogs and how they evolve from wolves. But, you know, I assume it's uh, wild wolves uh, started interacting with humans and then humans started sort of domesticating them and they domesticated the ones that became less wolf-like and so they were basically selecting for them and then so they evolved over time and the same thing with plants um but then at some point as i said um we discovered these units of heredity um and we started to have these uh, the theory of evolution from darwin um and so you start to put those two things together and you think now maybe we can actually um do this in a directed fashion um and that's when breeding really uh, came to the fore uh, back in the early 1900s, and especially with plants. So we'll get to the plant sex part now. Um, so in plants, what you're basically doing is you're you're arranging matings. You're kind of like I don't know, doing Tinder for plants, where you're saying we want to uh, find a, a mate. This plant doctor, needs a mate. If this is going to be a sex talk, I'm going to go get my other son too, because I'm just going to let you knock it out. <laughs> yeah, and, and and by the way, we can talk about the birds and the bees, which actually, when you think about it, is related to plants because sure. the bees are pollinating, and I think that that's actually where that that phrase came from is thinking about uh, at least part of it: the bees spreading pollen from one plant to the other. Yeah. So now that we realize that there's these genes and and there's a lot of variation in DNA. Uh, we can start to take advantage of that, and we can actually uh, set up matings, taking plant A and plant B and mate them together because we plant A has good attributes, like maybe it has really big ears if it's corn. Uh, plant B has another good attribute, like it's resistant to drought or it's resistant to disease but has small ears. Uh, so now I want to combine those. We understand that those differences are somewhere in their DNA, and we understand by having the plants do a sexual mating, now we can get a good combination because when it comes right down to it, in animals and in plants, sex is about 
creating new combinations of DNA, new combinations of variation. And so then evolution can work on it, or in the case of plant breeding, for example, plant breeders can work on it. And so this is a, when I, when I was in grad school in Oregon, as I mentioned, what I studied was meiosis. And I know that when most people hear us talk about meiosis, their eyes roll in the back of their heads and said, oh my God, I never understood that. Um, but it's, it is, <laughs> I love it almost as much as I love DNA. Um, because that's when all these combinations come together. Your grandparents' chromosomes in your parents come together and mix themselves up and create a new combination in the, the sperm and a new combination in the egg that come together to create you. And it's just like that in plants. In fact, when we do plant matings, we take pollen from one plant inside that pollen, our sperm, uh, sperm nuclei, uh, and then we... Uh, put them onto the plant, and in the case of corn, onto the uh, the ear, and the pollen. I've seen the videos the that do the same thing. What's that? I've, I've seen videos where they do the same thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah, and so and so that's that's when the, all these new combinations in every single sperm is different, and every single egg is different. And now you take those two things that are really different and bring them together, and you got something even more different. And uh, that's where you get all this variation from. And now the breeders are going to take those seeds that come from that, and they're going to plant them out. And they're going to look at them and they're going to test them and say, here's the one that's more resistant to disease. And it also has a bigger ear. And now I've just made an improved plant. This is how you hashtag have a plant, as we say, <laughs> on social media. This gives it whole new meaning. Um, now, before we get into some of the other ways of combining genes, I just, I just want to point out that whether we're talking about this um, breeding that maybe other people didn't really know that they were doing sort of by process of, of elimination and saving seeds, where you take it now to the modern grocery store where literally everything has been modified by humans somehow, all of that is consumer driven. Is that fair to say? So, you know, different tomatoes exist because we need different ones for ketchup and different ones for our canned tomato for our pizza and different ones for a sandwich. So I think some people have this, uh, this conception that there's just like a crazy scientist in a lab looking to inject tomatoes with something. Um, but really this all comes back to the consumer. Is that a fair statement to make yeah I, I think nicole that's a fair statement to make so especially when you come when it comes to things like vegetables fruits things like that um it's very consumer driven um the other big driver for breeders and for me personally is just thinking about uh food security and feeding the world and having enough production so um i think we're all aware that by the year 2050 uh there's going to be at least 9 billion people on this planet. Um, meanwhile, the amount of land that we have to grow crops on is actually shrinking because there's going to be more people on the planet. Um, and so you have these two opposing forces, more people to feed, less land to grow the food to feed them on. And then you throw on top of that the challenges of climate change and more extreme weather patterns, drought or too much water and so on. And it really gets challenging. 
Um, so yes, there's a lot of the breeding that we've been talking about and other improvements are uh, driven by consumer preferences, taste, um, texture, uh, nutrition, things like that. And then a lot of it is also driven by just the need to produce more and do it all sustainably as well. And so um, any I, I consider all of that to be traits, basically. And again, it comes back to the DNA, whether you're breeding for a better looking peach or in a, a corn that produces more bushels per acre. Um, either way, you can achieve both those goals by making changes in the DNA, uh, including breeding. In fact, the vast, vast, vast majority of what we eat uh, and, and have been eating for hundreds of years has been basically breeding. Uh, we have these new technologies, including uh, biotechnology, genetically modified organisms, GMOs, um, and then soon uh, gene editing. Um, but that's still just a small fraction of what, what we eat. The, the majority of it is uh, from breeding. So can you talk a little bit about how GMOs and things like gene editing and CRISPR, how those technologies are different from some of the traditional breeding? I sure can. And so, yeah, so in breeding, just to remind you, we're, we're, we're mixing up variation between plant A and plant B, basically. We're making new combinations of that between the genes that they already have and the variation that they already have. Um, but it's all just changes in DNA. So when we talk about GMOs, genetically modified organisms, um, I, I just said a, a few minutes ago that I, in a way, almost everything we eat has been genetically engineered. But, but when most people are talking about genetically modified organisms, GMOs, they're talking about plants where a gene or a couple of genes have been added to it. And those genes typically come from another species. So not a corn gene, going into corn, but maybe a gene from a bacteria going into cotton or corn or something like that. All right, so that, that's what most people th are talking about when they talk about GMO again. It's essentially creating variation in the DNA, which creates a new trait. So a, a, a classic example of this, a great example of this, is um, uh, what we call BT crops, Bacillus thuringiensis crops, uh, BT uh, uh, BT potato, BT corn, BT soy. These are crops where a gene has been added from a bacterium, Bacillus thuringiensis. That's what the BT stands for. And this gene gets transcribed into RNA, translated into protein, and it makes a protein that um, that is toxic to insects. And so when and farmers have been using these BTs, for a long time, including in, in organic farming, as a spray onto the, the crops. So that when insects are eating the leaf, they're also ingesting this. Uh, and so with these GMO crops, what we've done is taken the gene, the gene from the BT, and put it into the corn plant directly. And we can do that because all DNA in all living things is basically the same. It speaks the same language. It's all made up of the same four letters, A, C, G, and T. And it doesn't matter if it's a bacterium or a human, it's all just A, C, G, and T. 
And so you can take a gene from a bacterium and put it into a plant, and it will still make that same protein. Um, and so this, this is what we talk about um, when we talk about GMOs. So a lot of people think of that as very uh, modern and think about it as very high technology. Um, but again, it turns out that nature has been doing this all along. As we, get, as we learn more and more about the genes in the foods we eat, we find that thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of years ago, bacteria were already doing this or transferring genes. So, so in the soil out there, there's plants and bacteria living together, and occasionally they'll actually swap pieces. And so I think uh, some, some foods that we love to eat, like banana, like uh, tea that we drink, like the hops we use to make our beer, like the sweet potato that I just ate for dinner tonight, um, if you actually look at the DNA in, in those plants, uh, they actually have these very same kinds of bacterial genes in them. So nature has been doing this, and it's just another way uh, that essentially they've been changing their DNA um, and finding ways to improve them. So that, that's a GMO. So breeding. To make a, to make a comparison for the people out there that think like me, very simply, there's an old Simpsons episode where the Sim where uh, they went and bought a farm and they bred tomatoes and tobacco together and made tomaco and got everybody addicted <laughs> to tomatoes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it sounds like it's about the same. Well, yeah. Oh no, I will say that's a little extreme. Although you never you never know, nature can do some extreme things. Um, so I don't know about tomato, tomato and tobacco. Um, one, one thing I like to buy when I go to stores is pluots, which is a mixture oh, yeah. between a plum and, a, and an apricot. I love that kind of fruit. So there's a lot of those, those fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Plum and an apricot. Um, okay. So uh, breeding, we're mixing up all the variation and all the genes that plants already have. GMOs, we're actually inserting one or a few genes, typically from a bacteria. Um, and then uh, gene editing. So this is what I'm excited about now. This is what I work on now. Uh, there's a lot of excitement about it. Uh, almost everybody has heard of CRISPR, uh, which is a long, it's an acronym for a very long term, but essentially it's a way, it's a tool, it's a, it's a biological tool that can be used to make changes in DNA. And it, it's, it is an oversimplification, but, but a good metaphor is thinking about a search and replace uh, function in something like Microsoft Word, where, um, you know, you've, you've written your instruction manual, so like your DNA, um, or your recipe, your cookbook, and now you, you want to go in and make a couple of changes where you had said, um, where you had said a dark brown sugar, now you want to change it to light brown sugar or something like that. And you want to do that for all recipes, um, or maybe just one recipe. As you know, with, with a Word document, it's pretty easy to do. You, you find, you replace. And so that is an oversimplification, but in a way, that's how gene editing works with CRISPR. It allows you to search all the genes, all of the chromosomes, every single A, C, G, and T in all of the genes in a plant, let's say, and find the one gene and the one part of the gene that you want to change. It would be kind of like looking through an entire encyclopedia and finding one word in one paragraph on one page. Find it 
and then change it to make it better. Um, and so this is, this is exciting. This is exciting for scientists and it should be exciting for everybody because we need as many tools in our toolbox to improve crops for the food uh, that we need as we can get. So we need breeding, we need GMOs, uh, and now we have gene editing. Um, so it's yet just another tool. Um, and so just to distinguish it from GMOs, in this case, we're not adding a gene or adding genes. Uh, we're actually going in and making changes in the plant's own gene. And just, just, just for context, in a typical plant, um, you know, let's say soybean or corn, tomato, there may be about 40 or 50,000 genes in there already, uh, naturally. With GMOs, you're adding one or two more, so tiny compared to all the genes that are there. Um, and with gene editing, you're making a change in one or two of those genes. Out of the three, two or three billion letters in the alphabet in all of the genes, you're changing you can typically count on one hand how many you're changing. So it's very small changes, but they can make really big change, big um, outcomes for the plant. So where where are you actually adding these in? Like it sounds like you're going, you're just going through code and code and code and code before you find the one specific one that turns on the one thing that you want. That's right. That's right. And actually, what this enzyme does. Oh, I should have brought that. I, the other thing I have on my desk at work is a a three D model of the CRISPR. Uh, protein it's it's basically searching so it's what <laughs> it's it's searching it, it really is kind of like a search and replace so it's actually scanning uh you can imagine this extremely long string of beads let's say that represents the dna and it's searching 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 until it finds the right spot uh and it's the gene now we've learned a lot about the genes the dna in these plants over the last uh, especially the last 30 years or 20 years. Um, so um, we, we, we've learned a lot that allows us to know which genes to try to make these changes to. There's still a lot of trial and error. There's still a lot of testing that goes on. Um, but that's, that's basically gene editing. It's really exciting. A lot of people are excited about it for human health applications. So there's a lot of exciting therapeutic uses that can really... Um, Re, uh, resolve, possibly cure some really ter terrible human diseases. But I think actually there's just as much potential in agriculture because remember, 9 billion people by the year 2050. And so we need all the tools that we can get. So when we're looking at things such as um, disease of orange trees in Florida. Is that something potentially that CRISPR will remedy or is that potentially, I don't know if you're even allowed to say, or is that potentially a GMO coming down the pike or something, or something like rotting on cacao, all of these really unfortunate kind of incidents that could impact our food supply. How can some of these technologies benefit? Yeah, so remember, it's it's another tool. So all these tools, breeding, uh, GMOs, gene editing, they can all be applied to those examples that you gave and everything else. Now, there may be some times where one is a better fit for the other. And so take, for example, um, 
gene editing versus breeding. Uh, breeding, remember, you have to take two plants and you have to cross them together, take the pollen from one, put it on the egg of another, uh, and then you have to get those seeds and you have to grow them. And all of that can take time. And how much time it takes depends on the plant. Uh, think about an or the citrus industry, which is threatened now, especially in Florida, by citrus greening disease that's threatening to wipe out that industry. Um, it obviously grows on trees. Oranges grow on trees. As you know, gr trees grow slow compared to like a petunia plant. And in fact, it'll take years from the time you plant that seed until the time that it starts making flowers and you could do that kind of cross between them. Um, and so if you were trying to improve citrus or other trees by uh, breeding, it can take a very long time. Um, and so that's where something like gene editing can be really exciting. If you, if you think you know the gene or genes that you want to change, you can do that in one generation, basically, rather than have to go through multiple generations, each of which could take years. And so I think, you know, it's, you have to have all these tools at your disposal, but, um, in some cases, one tool may be better for another. And then even for plants that can be bred quickly, several generations per year, for example, like the ones that we typically work with, it's still, there's still some advantages because even though uh, breeding has the potential to give you lots and lots of new combinations, some of those are gonna be way more common than others. And if the combination you need to make your uh, tomato sweeter or your your lettuce plant resistant to disease is one of those rare ones it could be essentially not feasible to do so that's another another good fit for something like gene editing so doctor what would be um like are there any applications where that can switch over to either animals or humans like the block from disease or anything to that effect uh, you mean for gene editing with CRISPR Yes. Yeah. So, so there, as I said, there's a lot of excitement about using CRISPR to resolve, to cure, to treat human diseases. Sickle cell anemia is one. A lot of the bloodborne diseases are being uh, attempted to be addressed with CRISPR. Um, in the animal world, uh, there are gene editing uh, projects going on to make uh, pigs that are resistant to viruses, so just like humans. Uh, all, pigs and all animals basically are susceptible to viral diseases, and um, there are ways that you can make them less susceptible through gene editing. Another um, really cool example is in dairy cattle, where um, dairy cattle, because of how they're managed uh, while they're still young, um, they, they have their horns removed, and they do that surgically right now, and um, it's not a, a, it's not a very nice process, but it's necessary to keep the animals from harming each other. Um, and so, on the other hand, you can eliminate those horns from growing with changes in the DNA. And there have been examples already uh, of producing genetically, or I should say gene-edited cows that don't grow the horns, but other than that, they're the exact same cows and produce the exact same milk. And so that removes the need to have to remove those horns. And so really, any those are just three examples, but pretty much anything that you could think about breeding for 
or using other genetic techniques for, I think are possibly able to be done with gene editing. So I guess the next question would be how ethical it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And so let's be honest, There, are, you have to take that in consideration as well. Uh, you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier, and I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, it's like uh, you've, you've thought about what you can do. You never stop to think what you should do. And uh, that's Jeff Goldblum character, right. I think. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think and we'll so, of you, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, so yes, we have to think about uh, the ethics of what you're doing and, and um, the, what the, the societal implications are and so on. And I, and I, and I, like, to, I like to think that I think we've learned a lot of lessons in the past about how we've approached this and how we haven't approached it and how maybe we could have engaged better with the broader society. And one thing that I think is really exciting about CRISPR besides the science is that people realize that there are some, especially when you think about human health, there are some really big ethical questions involved there. Um, and so even as this technology was just starting out, even before it was even possible to do any of these things that we just got done talking about, looking far into the future, as people realize that, they immediately started having those conversations about whether or not this is the right thing to do, what what should be treated and what shouldn't be treated. And, and again, this is especially in human therapeutics, um, but they brought together people from all sectors of society, um, from all over the world to convene in meetings. There's one that I have attended a few times called CRISPR-Con. No, you don't dress up in costumes. It's actually quite serious. And there's, a, there's some science discussed at that meeting. Uh, but mostly it's the implications of what you're doing in agriculture and food and in, and in human health. And so I think that's great. Uh, personally, I welcome having those conversations uh, because one thing I know for sure is uh, even though I'm a scientist and I am super excited about the science and I, the DNA and all that kind of stuff, the coolest science in the world doesn't mean anything if the world doesn't want it if they're not ready for it. And so everybody needs to be part of that conversation, especially when it comes to agriculture, because this is actually food. This is what producing the food that people will eat. It's the food that people will put on their tables. It's the food that they will feed to their son or their daughter, uh, to their family. And so it's very important to them. And so um, I am happy to take part in those conversations uh, about old technologies, new technologies, and so on. What has been your proudest project in your career oh wow i've i've the one i'm working on right now but no i i, I always think the one i'm doing right now is the most exciting thing but um you meant this podcast you know, blush. yeah this podcast this is, this the is pinnacle, it right obviously. here i need a, i need a mic that i can drop after this is done anyway um so i I've worked, I've had the, the, the pleasure of working on a lot of really cool projects. And um, it's not one project, but I would say I come back to the example I gave a little while ago about BT, insect resistant um, uh, plants. So, so I remember when I first started, um, we, had a, we had a genetically engineered potato plant, a BT potato plant. And we always had a live display to show visitors when they came in. 
And um, so one plant was just a regular potato plant. And the other one was a genetically modified potato plant. And then we would put larvae on those plants, so baby beetles, um, for uh, an insect called Colorado potato beetle. And this, this insect eats the plants. And so I would walk by it every day. And within just a few days, less than a week, the unmodified plant was basically gone. Gone. And the plant next to it, the modified plant, looked untouched basically i even took it in when my daughter was in kindergarten i thought it was so cool i took it into her kindergarten class to show them they were not quite as impressed as i am but um as i was but um but it was pretty cool and so when i think about that i think that is amazing uh what really precise biotechnology can do because as i said before there's tens of thousands of genes in there already billions of base pairs of DNA, and we've added one more, and it makes such a big difference. And so not only is it cool to look at, but you know what that means is if you've done that, now you don't have to spray those plants with nearly as much pesticides, in some cases, none. Um, and so for me, that's huge that we can take a relatively tiny piece of DNA, put it in there, and it, and it works and it makes the RNA and all that kind of stuff. I think that is so cool. And I've, I've worked on a number of projects like that since then. I didn't myself work on the potato. That was already there when I started. But I, I think that is so cool uh, how you can make such a big impact on the plant itself and then by extension in agriculture and, and uh, the world with one little piece of DNA. It's amazing. So there's no gene editing like uh, arms race where there's a guy that really likes beetles out there and he's making them not susceptible to this. No, I I don't think so. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's like a science fiction. You could see that I can see a movie coming out about that. You'd you'd probably make a a good uh, actor in that movie. Um, <laughs> so yeah. And, by the way, so the arms Jeff, race. If you want to be the Jeff Goldblum character, we'll start casting now. <laughs> All right. Um, but so th the real arms race is just a natural one. And um, so when um, whether humans do it or the plants do it themselves, you know, by the way, plants long before humans walked the earth were already making their own insecticidal proteins. Um, so they have to protect themselves. And so, um, so there's always been this arms race where the plants, with human help nowadays, but always have been have been making the cells resistant to insects, and the insects have been mutating themselves to overcome that, and then the plants mutate themselves and back and forth and back and forth. That's always been true, and it's even true with modern biotechnology. So we put a gene in there; it makes the plant resistant to insect. The insect becomes resistant to that gene. We put a different gene in there. It now becomes resistant to insects, and then the insects do it. So this, this sort of biological arms race, whether it's modern technology involved or no technology involved, it's always there. I have one more question for you. I had, can't bring myself to just call you Larry. We could go with Dr. <laughs> yeah. Larry. If, there, if you could think of either your own personal produce shopping experience or an issue that you're aware of somewhere in the world, what is one plant problem you would like to see remedied by either 
gene editing or genetic modification. By the way, you can, if you don't, not comfortable calling me Larry, call me Genome Larry. That's my Twitter <laughs> handle, Genome Excellent. Larry. Excellent. <laughs> I like that. that. That's a good plug. That's a good plug. Genome Larry on Twitter. I like it. That's Go right. On. I, uh, yeah, I snuck it in. Um, <laughs> Is that also Instagram, Facebook, anywhere else? Just Twitter. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, um, Nicole, that's a great question. I, um, so it's, it's easy for my mind to go to simple, relatively simple things, kind of trivial things like, man, I wish my avocado didn't turn brown so quick. Um, and that's, by the way, something I think gene editing will solve soon. Um, but it's really, you know, I, I know it sounds like, oh, you're just supposed to say that, but there's 9 billion people by the year 2050 um, and food insecurity already, even without that, um, that is why I do what I do. And um, to be able to do it sustainably and because, you know, it's one thing to be able to do it by adding lots and lots and lots of inputs to the farms but that's not going to be sustainable in the long run. And so I, um, that's what, why I do what I do. And now if I could wave my magic wand and, and that's, you know, I don't believe in magic. I'm a scientist, <laughs> but um, it, that's, that's what I would do. And I, I don't know, it'll be a series of little improvements as it has been for a, a century now with every now and then hopefully punctuated by a big improvement. And um that's that's what I live for. That's why I go into work every day. It really is. Um, and because of the fun of discovery and uh, doing experiments with, with DNA. So what's the biggest obstacle to that? Yeah, there's a lot of obstacles. You know, it takes time. I'm an impatient person. You know, I'm the kind of person who... It says microwave for four minutes, and after about three minutes, I say, okay, that's good enough. So yep. <laughs> I want things to get done quickly. So patience is... Um, is not my strength, so it takes time. Um, really, uh, one of the one of the big ones, and and why I love talking with the public about this, and why I think it's important, is uh, acceptance. And I understand that this is challenging. I sometimes wonder if I didn't work in this in this industry, and if I didn't do what I would do, how would I think about all of this? And and I have to admit, I I can understand where the questions come from. Um, as we know, there's a lot of uh, concerns and questions and, and actually opposition to GMOs. Um, I'm, that's very unfortunate. Uh, in my opinion, I'm, I understand where that's coming from, a lot of it. Um, as I said, I feel like we, we do have to do a better job of talking with people about the science we do and the, the benefits that it can bring. And so... I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions. There's a lot of misinformation out there. But now, misinformation can come down to being, I mean, if, if you don't agree with it, you're basically anti-science. If you're anti-science, you're basically a flat earther. So <laughs> really, yeah, no, I would not go that far. Love that science yeah. is real. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I wouldn't go quite that far that, uh, you know, I think not necessarily anti-science, but just um, not appreciated as much as I do. That's for sure. Um, and I, you know, it's. I also don't believe that it's just about the science. So one thing I've done and we've done many times is say, "Oh, we just need to do a better job of explaining the science." Here, let me get my chalkboard and show you how DNA works and all that. Um, that's that's uh, that's helpful, but not nearly as much. I think as as 
you might think. It's not just about the science. Ultimately, I think it's got a lot to do with uh, trust. Where, who do you trust? Where do you get the information that you trust? Uh, not surprisingly, I think a person like me who works for a company that, that sells GMOs, probably not super high on the trust level, even though I think I'm a very trustable guy. Um, and so where do you get to the information um, and who do you believe? And ultimately, I think it's about, about trust. And when, especially when it comes to things like human health and you know, things like food. Food is uh, very emotional and um, not just because people care a lot about, you know, the taste and the look and all that, but it's ultimately something you're nourishing yourself with. So, so it's, it's really tough. And unfortunately, once questions start arising, it's really hard to change those. And so when new technologies come, like gene editing, you know, each time something like this happens, and I've been doing this long enough that I've seen new technologies, a few waves of new technologies come. Uh, my hope is that we can have a, con a different kind of conversation um, that isn't just about the science, um, but about the benefits, and especially about the risks of not doing this. That's the one, one thing that we don't talk enough about, I think, is okay. Uh, you know, we can never say that something is risk-free, uh, but there are also big risks to not doing this. Um, and so I think that's one of the other big challenges that we have with this kind of technology. Fantastic. Some really, really great points there. Genome Larry. Find him on thank Twitter. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes as well. We want to thank you okay. so very much for spending some of your time with us this evening. And we hope to have you back in the future. And we'd be happy to come back anytime. It's been it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Nicole and Dave. Thank you, sir. Wonderful. Until next time, everyone. Again, check out Genome Larry on Twitter. You could find me there as well, and Rodriguez RDN. But you're going to have to go over to IG to check out Dave Sharotsky. Until next time, have a great evening. <laughs>